This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. All the news organizations at the national level in the lower 48, etc., are trying to blame all of this collapsing salmon fishery on climate change. Mm -hmm. And... It just doesn't hold water. There was a record run of Kenai River Reds last year. Even the Silvers are, are um, doing a little bit better. Pinks are, you know, running strong as they, they've ever done in a lot of fisheries. And those fish aren't in the same level of the water column that are affected like mm. chums and kings are. It's not just climate change. It can't be. Um, because if it was, then then the pinks would be struggling right. too. And so with the Reds and, you know, everything else that go, that runs into this river systems. This is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Fascinating stories to amaze, encourage, and inspire you in fishing, fitness, and the outdoors. And we're brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee. I started this podcast as a way to connect with my friends, people that I admire and respect, and you. It has been a learning journey that's made me a better person, a better fisherman, a better father, and a better athlete. I'm so happy that you're on this journey with me, and I'd love to hear from you with show suggestions, guest suggestions, or questions. The best way to get a hold of me is through text. You can text 305-930-7346 for the fastest response, but if you prefer to email, you can send that to podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. That's a dedicated email address just for the show. If you like this show, you can show your support by posting about it on social media and tagging me. Text the link to a couple of friends that may also enjoy it and subscribe and leave a five-star review if you feel like I've earned it. The website is tomrollandpodcast.com, and that is where everything lives. All past shows, you can go and listen to any show. You can look up all the different shows that we've done, both the How To Tuesdays, the Full Links, and the Physical Fridays. They all live on tomrollandpodcast.com, and the social media is tom underscore Roland, R-O-W-L-A-N-D, on Instagram, or you can go to our big account, saltwater underscore experience. I hope to hear from you soon. So now let's get on to today's show. I'm Cody McLaughlin, and this is the Tom Roland Podcast. All right, Cody, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. It's good to have you on here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, we were just talking about your move to, to Alaska. Yep. Where did you move there? Uh, so I moved up to Wasilla, or just outside of Wasilla in Big Lake, um, uh, in the Matsu Valley, uh, about an hour-ish outside of Anchorage. 
Okay. I was just up in that area, not, not too far from you, uh, last summer. And uh, love Alaska. Man, what an incredible state that is. God, you can't you can't look in any direction and not see something pretty. I'm telling you, I'm looking. At, there's a window over here and a window over here. I can see the Chugach Mountains out that window, and there's a horse farm behind me. And out this one's just really wooded and stuff. So that's it's awesome. So any direction you look. How did you decide to move there? What 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 was the what was the move like? Uh, so so I'm a I'm a COVID mover. Um, <laughs> so I I lived and worked on the East coast. A lot of my life, I lived in worked in Oregon for a couple of years. Um, I work in politics. So I worked in 26 States, lived in all of them for a few months at a time. Each ended up in DC. Absolutely hated my life. Cause I couldn't see anything green. Couldn't really go fishing every day. Stuff like that. Moved back to New Jersey, New Jersey to their credit has, has some decent fishing. Um, but always kind of felt the itch to go to Alaska. It's one of the few states I had never worked in. And um, so then COVID happened. Shortly after COVID happened, do you guys remember those uh, big city riots over the, over the whole race issue and stuff yeah. in 2020? Yeah. Yeah, I got, I got stuck in the middle of one of them. And then during one of those riots, somebody cracked the back window of my truck. Mm. Um, and that was it for me. I was like, no more cities, no more East Coast, no more nothing. I'm moving either to Montana or Alaska. I saw a great property um, uh, for sale that a friend of mine posted about, kind of saying the same thing in Alaska. That one fell through, but then a couple months later, a realtor found me a really nice house in Wasilla. I couldn't believe how cheap it was. I couldn't believe how cheap the taxes were in comparison to where I come from in Jersey. Um so I sight unseen. I did a I did a FaceTime walkthrough of the house, and then afterwards, I, I a month later, I was on a plane to Alaska. Wow, wow! And so, how has it been uh, since since moving there? Um, did, were there a lot of other people that moved to Alaska, or or? Yeah, I think Alaska really did get an influx of people from the work from home crowd. Right, mm-hmm. um, COVID pushed a lot of. Um, what were, what were office jobs into work from home jobs, which I think is the direction that they should be going anyway. Cause it gives, you know, gives people like me, you know, the ability to work, you know, doing, doing a good job that pays well. Um, but also get to do what I love, which is, you know, go fishing in Alaska. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think there's a lot of people that did that. Thankfully I moved to big lake. So it's a little bit outside of the, the city itself. So, um, you know, I'm still in kind of a, relatively by lower 48 standards, undeveloped kind of rural area. Um, but it's a, it's a, it was a great move for me. And I mean, from a, from a happiness standpoint, it's funny. My coworkers would tell me uh, every morning they say, Oh my God, it's 5am for you. I'm so sorry that I'm calling you so early. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, I love working East coast hours in Alaska. Cause I work from five to two. And I can still take a half an hour nap if the spirit moves me. And by 2.30, I'm fishing. Yeah. So what about the fishing that you're doing up there? What kind of fishing do you like to like to do? There's so much different types of fishing up there. Even when I was just there last year, we did you know three or four different types of fishing. It was it was incredible. I mean, there's so much yeah, to so do. Yeah, there's str- there, uh, and there's no shortage of it either. And you could... You could throw a rock in any direction and find fishable water, mm-hmm. uh, seemingly. So lakes, rivers, small streams, bigger streams, creeks. Um, you got the salt water. You know, you got 
Um, you know, you got a lot of, you got eight months of hard water fishing. You got a really strong summer where you can fish until three o'clock in the morning and it looks like it's noon outside. <laughs> um, and so I've been focusing a lot on salmon and to a, to a smaller degree in some of those off, uh, times between salmon runs, I'll, I'll target grayling cause I think they're cool. Um, which really miffs the trout fishermen because they're like, well, wait till you hook into a trout. And I'm like, look, man, I can get a trout in any state, okay? I can't get a grayling in any state. I can't get an Arctic char in every in every state. So well, there's a lot of, there's a, no shortage of great in, fishing uh, up here. In in planning our trip last year, one of the, one of my Alaskan contacts was telling me about the grayling fishing up there. And apparently uh, if you get in the right spot, it is incredibly good. Oh my God. I, especially at the right time of year, cause they tend to move. Mm-hmm. Um, they follow the salmon around and basically eat their eggs. Um, but I've caught, I caught two trophy size grayling last year. I mean, I got like, what do they call them? The certificates and stuff from, um, from, uh, the Alaska fish and game hmm. commission. So they were all over 18 inches long and that's bigger than any trout I'd ever seen <laughs> before moving to Alaska. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, and I caught one 20 plus inch, like fat grayling. The thing was massive. Um, and I mean, I got an IGFA super grand Sam for salmon and this is all in like two years. I caught a damn near 30 inch, really nice, um, fall spawning color, Arctic char. Um, I've caught my fill of Kings. I filled my freezer with Kings and red salmon and, um, I've battled chums, pink salmon, caught really nice halibut. Uh, no, nothing over a hundred pounds yet, which I'm really hoping for. But I've, I've been chasing them. Um, there's over a hundred different types of rockfish up here, uh, in the in the salt there. Wow. So there's there's no shortage of opportunity. Well, it sounds like you've been pretty busy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Damn near every day, man. <laughs> Especially in the summertime. That's awesome, man. That's really awesome. And uh, what about the bear? What about the bear situation? With all that roaming around, have you uh, have you run into a few? Yes, uh, quite a few. <laughs> um, lar- largely, they leave you alone. I gotta say, like, and I'm not trying to be Mr. Tough Guy up uh, up here. I'm not even gonna lie to you. I I spent a week hunting um, deer on Kodiak and. Um, I got really lucky that first summer here. I didn't see a lot of brown bears. I saw the tracks and the scat, and I was basically right behind them in the creek, but they'd just walk up ahead of me, and I just never – I was never on the same section of creek they were. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I spent miles and miles on the Willow Creek and Deception Creek and Montana Creek up near Willow in the um, south-central region. But um, – so the first brown bear I saw in the wild was on Kodiak and I was, I was dropping a deuce on a, on a lakeside <laughs> up in the Alpine at my, next to my camp. And he came waddling out of the brush and this thing looked like it to a kid from Jersey camping alone on Kodiak. This thing looked like an SUV yeah. with fur. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like this thing, what, it, what the hell? And so I, I, had a whole discussion at the gun shop uh, when I first moved up here about what I should carry around for bear protection. Um, and they, there was, there's two schools of thought. There's the semi-auto school of thought where you get a 10 millimeter and that's all you really need because you get more um, shots off. It's more efficient. Um, and there's the 357 mag. You only need one bullet, but like it's, you know, it's a revolver. Mm-hmm. So I've never really been comfortable with revolvers. I've always been more of a long arm guy anyway. So like, I was like, you know what, if I'm going to be quaking like a maraca, I would rather have my 10 mil. Yeah. 
<laughs> so uh, that I felt it was woefully inadequate, though, the first time I saw one. So I came back, and the uh, first thing I bought was a 357 mag. Wow. And do you carry bear spray, too, or just, just that? Uh, occasionally, bear spray. I'm going to... Again, I'm going to sound either stupid or like a like I'm trying to be a tough guy, but a lot of times you you get really I don't like carrying around the gun. It's like very cumbersome, especially like if you're trying to take on and off your tackle bag mm-hmm. and whatnot. It just gets in the way. So I don't I don't really carry anything half the time. Um but when I do, it's usually the 10 mil. I'll I'll either stick it like I'll either clip it to the tackle bag where I can have easy access or like right in front of my belt on my waders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, that's, they're, they're, they're really big and very intimidating. And, you <laughs> yes, know, in a lot of ways you're lucky to get, I mean, if, if something really went bad and they were to charge you, you'd be lucky to get to your bear spray if, and having never practiced, you know, mm-hmm. finding it, you know, a lot of people are putting it like around their backside and, and oh, they've never God. practiced yeah. pulling this out uh, the same thing with, with a, with a pistol, you know, if you don't practice drawing that pistol, the chances of you being able to draw it, if you really needed to, would probably be pretty low. Um, well, and that's why I'm more comfortable with the pistol because I do go to the range and practice mm-hmm. with that a lot more. Um, so again, like to, to your point, every time I look at the bear spray canister, I'm like, man, I don't practice with this enough to be able to like in one fluid motion, flick the thing off and spray a bear charging yeah. 30 miles an hour I mean, in the face, you know? That's what that's what you don't I mean a lot of people don't really consider that is like this thing is fast as a as a racehorse and it if it's it's going to be if you have to do this, it's going to be coming directly at you. Like it's not like yep. oh uh, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I've never been charged by a grizzly bear. So thankfully, um, so I don't know, but I've seen the videos and when they decide to come, it's really, really fast, really fast. And yeah, they, they run like the Dickens man yeah. like faster than a black bear. I mean, faster than a deer. Yeah. <laughs> like I've seen videos too, and I've seen them run away from me and they cover so much ground so quick that like, and nothing really gets in their way. You know, right. they're knocking over bushes and whatnot. They're not going around stuff to, to, to get at you. Well, let's hope it um, never happens to either one of us. Uh, and, and Yeah, we never, thankfully, never every time I've out. seen a grizzly bear run in real life, it's been the other direction. Yeah. Um, I spooked one in, uh, I spooked a big boar. He was probably five or 600 pounds at Troublesome Creek, which is named uh, that because Aptly of all named. the bears that they have up there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, I was fishing the Troublesome Creek during the, during the uh, King run last year and um, trying to go for like, cause uh, there's a lot of trout that follow around those Kings and like the, you get the big fat trout that are like tanks because they feed up on the, on the salmon eggs. Yeah. So I was, I was going after them just chucking beads and yeah, I was, I was about, it's about a half mile hike from the parking area um, down to the, down to the Creek and I spooked this big brown bear and he just got up and all you saw was his big brown ass just waddling away. And it was like, <laughs> that's was, the right direction. Was, uh, that's the direction you want him to go. I, yeah. I, I can assure you yeah. it's definitely the direction. So the king fishing, um, is, is one of the reasons why we're, we're talking today. Tell me about mm-hmm. what your first experience was when you, when you first got to Alaska, you go, um, and experience the, the king run and what year that was and, and just what that was like. Yeah, so that was 2021, um, in May 2021. 
I uh, I did a lot of research. I was looking at maps. I was driving around scouting all the way through uh, the winter time, trying to figure out where it's gonna um, you know thaw out first. Where you know what it's going to look like talking to people in the Facebook groups and the tackle shops and stuff. I, I ended up settling on, um, on fishing a Willow Creek when that opened up for Kings. Um, and I did one fly fishing trip down, uh, with a, with an outfitter by the name of bear Paul river guides. That guy really taught me a lot about fishing in Alaska, especially in that, uh, that Creek system. Mm-hmm. Um, his name's Shane Ford, really nice guy. And so he gave me like a really good crash course in like just fishing in Alaska. We spent the whole day together and, you know, um, talking about how to fish to King Run and stuff. Cause this was, I had fished in Nadrabis runs before, obviously most fishermen have, but like shad and stuff like that, where like, they're so thick that like you're, you're either in them or you're not in them mm-hmm. and it's really easy to figure out. So, um, Salmon are a little bit more finicky to a degree where you can be in them. You can see piles of them in the water, but if they're not biting for any reason, they're just, you know, then you're, then you're still casting right over them. So, um, so everybody was saying, um, and you take this with a grain of salt when you hear people say this, right? Ah, the fish are so thick. You can walk on their back across the water, blah, 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 blah. You know, the water looks black, yada, yada. Um, I thought they were full of crap. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie. Uh, for for all the way up until May, I'm like, okay, cool, cool, sounds great, thanks. Uh, comes time, and I'm telling you, when that bite turns on, this just it's it goes bananas. Like there's just, you know, you see people, and you're either fishing with a billion people or no people in Alaska. It's the weirdest thing in the world. <laughs> there's never like just one other guy on the river with you. It's either combat fishing. Or like you are by yourself, <laughs> but no matter what happens, once the once the bite really turns on, you really get a lot of action. And I'm I'm saying there's there was no shortage of kings. I was pulling you know thirty thirty five damn near forty inch fish out of the water like they were like they were going out of style. Wow. Um, and putting them back and just hooking another one a couple minutes later, you know, um, and. You know, I had the most success fishing for kings that first year. I learned a lot because I was fishing for the trout that were chasing them, mm-hmm. and they were taking the little trout lures and spooling me. Mm, yeah. So uh, that was – that was they get really aggressive, like especially like right before they start really, really turning. Mm-hmm. Um, they start protecting their nests and stuff. I learned a lot about their behavior. Um, I learned a lot about reading the water, frankly. There's so much more water – up here that you learn a lot more about, you know, what kind of seams you're looking for, telling how deep a seam is just by looking at it, things like that. Nice. And then um, what was the uh, the amount of fish that you saw that first year compared to maybe the, the following year? Um, how did that kind of shake out? Yeah, so that was – that's the starkest – part of it for me is that there was no shortage of Kings that first year. There's, I mean, tons of them, you know, I, I probably personally caught somewhere in the 90 to 96 King range that first year. And this is as a, as a newbie, right? Like never fished for Kings before. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, um, and so Alaska does a lot of fishing management by emergency order. So they, you know, either either pro or against the fishermen right so like they'll liberalize your 
you're taking possession limits or um, tighten them by emergency order with, you know, 12 hours notice. Hmm. Um, so that first year, it was bananas. Like every day there was another emergency order liberalizing the season. Hey, you can catch more Kings. You can catch them out of the little Sioux now. You can catch them, you know, um, uh, you can use bait now, blah, blah, blah. Like all of this, you know, all these liberalizations. And I was expecting the same thing that second year, and it was completely the opposite. Hmm. Season started like normal, and then a week in, um, they canceled um, fishing out of a couple of the major river systems in my area. Um, and then they they closed the entire Susitna River drainage last year for, for king salmon. Um, and all the way through the Kinnick, um, so all the way, they, they closed the the – the legendary Kenai River for for kings. Yeah, um, that's, they, where I, that's where all I was. These, yeah, all these huge, huge, like legendary. I mean, two world records came out of the Kenai River, um, and they like all these legendary like things people talk, things old timers back east talk about right. fisheries. Um, they closed, and um, and and then they restricted so much of the state that I had to go in order to keep a king. Um, one king I kept last year, put him in my freezer. We had to go all the way 200, 250 or so miles east of where I'm at right now um, to the Gulcana River, completely different, like the Copper River system. Mm-hmm. Um, and even that was starting to tighten up. Hmm. Um, and then you start thinking about what other fisheries in the – in the state have been going through like the, the Yukon river, their chum season, their King season, all of that stuff. That's, I mean, even the subsistence guys aren't allowed to fish anymore in that oh, river. Really? Um, Oh yeah. They closed down even subsistence fisheries in the, in the Yukon river. Wow. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. And so uh, your experience, like I know that there are uh, all sorts of mechanisms that the state uses to count fish and and ways that they they know, you know, pretty, pretty accurately, I would imagine what's coming into the river. But as an as an angler's perspective from 2021 to 2022, you're going and fishing the same place. You're seeing the river is black. You can walk across their backs on one year and the next year looks like what? I mean, uh, a fish every hundred yards or so, wow. you know, one or two at a time. Wow. Um, in one year. Like the, I'm, in, in one year. Now, and you think about it, so all of this stuff had to start happening seven-ish years ago because kings spend anywhere between four and seven years in the ocean before they start running back up the river, um, which is when we see them, right? So, um, so something had to happen because this is the second year in a row that they're, I mean, they're preemptively closing the king salmon before they ever even reach the rivers now. Um, and they're, they're closing the entire connect drainage for king retention. I've had to cancel four guided king trick, king fishing trips over the last two years that I booked a year out, you know, and that's not a problem for me because I live down the road, right? right. If you, if the, if the guide calls and cancels with me, cool. Right. Uh, I'm just not going king fishing that day and I'll just do, find something else to do that day. 
but it, I shudder to think about what a lot of your listeners, like guys that are coming up here for a once in a lifetime, I'm going to catch a King salmon. They're literally called King salmon for a reason, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> like they're these legendary fish in a legendary run in the legendary state of Alaska. And I mean, these guides are, are going through it right now. Like they're not, they're not getting a lot of like forward insight into, into how it's going to look. And then if they're trying to, if they're having to cancel fishing trips for these, for these out of state, you know, um, anglers that are coming up here to have a once in a lifetime opportunity, and it really is turning into a once in a lifetime opportunity. If you haven't fished for Kings yet in Alaska, you should get it done in the next 12 months or I'm not sure what's, what it's going to look like in five or 10 years at this rate. Yeah. So like you're, um, living up there and I'm sure that this is the topic of conversation, uh, at every place you're, you're having a cup of coffee or, or anything else. Like, I mean, this is the lifeblood of, of Alaska in a lot of ways. What are the, um, what are the locals saying? Like, what do people think happened? What do you, what does, what's the kind of talk about what might have happened either coming from the state scientists and biologists or coming from the locals or coming from people that have lived there their entire life? And, you know, maybe somebody's got a little bit of insight that, you know, people like, like myself that love Alaska and want to come back to Alaska, you know, everybody's kind of interested in this. And, and I have heard about the King's um, decline, but nobody, I don't, I don't know why, or if there's anything that can be done about it, or if, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Just kind of what, what's your opinion of, of what people are talking about up there? And are there different, different kind of theories about what, what has happened? Um, yeah, so there's a bunch of theories about what's happening, and there's there's a huge disconnect between what all the national newspapers, all the lower 48 newspapers are covering, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, it's climate change. It's all climate change, right. which I'm sure that that has something to do with it, right? For sure. Um, nobody up here is denying that, but they totally gloss over what other interests are having as an effect on King Salmon, especially, Um Across the state. So one big contributor to the decline, in our opinion, so I'm, I'm on the board of the Alaska Outdoor Council, which is an advocate for um, hunting and fishing policy and, um, and equal access for, um, for the residents of the state and non-residents alike um, to, to enjoy all the outdoors that Alaska has to offer. So we, we are of the strong opinion that um, that factory trawling has had a huge impact on Alaska fishing, especially king salmon fishing, but also other really good sport fisheries in Alaska. Chum salmon, in my opinion, are the second best. I, I know a lot of people are huge silver fishermen. I'll get to them in a second because I think they're third. But I think for pound for pound, a chum salmon's a better mm-hmm. fish to catch if you're just looking to rip lips now i um, heard when, when we were up there that 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 was another another species that was having a, a very hard time and i was surprised because the first time i went to alaska was probably 18 years ago and the chums were thick and thick thick <laughs> and it was like it was like the jack crevel in florida or something is like ah we don't want any more of those and it's like i don't know they're yep. pretty they fight pretty hard they, you know, these these are really fun and uh yep. and and that so so i'm sorry to interrupt you there but um the chum was i i, I had 
found out the same thing that they were having they were in decline also so uh the also a massive decline especially on that yukon river the eastern side of the state um so you have you know these two major kind of legendary fisheries um to a to a lesser degree you're seeing impacts on the silver fishery as well um silver salmon they're kind of the 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 queen of salmon if you will um and so, and the effect it's having is that trawl, trawling is having is through what's called bycatch. So every type of commercial fishing has bycatch um, to it. So it's, and bycatch, if you've never, if you're not familiar with commercial fishing policy, um, is just when, when commercial fisheries catch something by accident and or kill it by accident. Um, and it's not what they were intending. So if they're, you know, a lot of this is driven by pollock fishing, right? So if they're midwater trawling, quote unquote, midwater trawling for pollock, and they sweep up, you know, a whole pot of kings, and, you know, they get caught in nets or gills get ripped, et cetera, et cetera. Or like, you know, they're um, in the in the case of halibut, where this, these giant factory um, draggers are dragging across the bottom and just mowing down these kings or these uh, these halibut, um, you're you're seeing um, huge bycatch mortality rates. Uh, it's almost a hundred percent of whatever they whatever they're bycatching. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is that it's it's a really murky issue from a mathematical standpoint because of the way that. Um, that fisheries are observed in Alaska. So observer rates are super low, especially in the Gulf of Alaska, where a lot of this is happening. So actual king bycatch could be 10 times what we're actually seeing recorded. And the number that we're actually seeing recorded, which again, we're saying is low, is incredibly high. Since 1991, I've got some numbers here for you. Since 1991, a total of 1.7 million kings have been documented as trawl bycatch in Alaska. It could be anywhere up to 10 times that amount. So you're talking about up to from anywhere from 1.7 to nearly 12 million kings could have been, and that's just the king salmon, could have been the subject of bycatch in Alaska. One, just over 1 million of those came from the Bering Sea and the Aleutian Islands, and another nearly a million of them came from the Gulf of Alaska. Hmm. Uh, and that information does not come from me. That comes directly from weekly bycatch reports that are that are published by the Department of Fish and Game. Observer rates, again, really low. Um, but we've got a message. Um, the AOC got a message from one guy who said they were getting 30,000 pounds of kings in a single trawl set. And this was back in the 80s. Now, again, um, the 80s sounds like a long time ago. But when you're talking about runs that are on seven-year cycles, mm-hmm. right, Um you know, all of that stuff that happened back then is starting to affect us to a great degree now because the more that they're killing these fish before they even get into the river to spawn, the more that they're reducing the potential for, for fish l- further down the line. Mm. Um, and that was back on Kodiak. Trawl regulators, and this is the big problem, right? The MPFF, uh, C, um don't even make an attempt. Wait, what, at is, factory, what is the MPFFC? What is that? The the North Pacific Marine Fishery okay. Council. All right. Um, so they're the uh, they're the federal group that um, that is supposed to regulate uh, and you know maintain the balance between commercial fishing and um, and sport fishing uh, in Alaska and, and the North Pacific. Now, I I know a lot of commercial fishermen. I know a lot of guys who do both sport fishing, like as guides and um, mm-hmm. and 
the um, commercial fishing thing. Mm-hmm. I don't have any love lost for um, for commercial fishermen. I'm, I have great respect for that tradition because I believe that everybody should have access to clean and sustainable seafood. And um, a lot of these like long line fisheries and stuff like that are a good way to get sustainable seafood um, that everybody sh- should have the right to, to have. Factory fishing, though, like trawling, is doing huge damage to these to these to halibut nurseries, to king salmon, to chum salmon, a lot of the like fish that are lower in the uh, uh, in the water column. Mm-hmm. Um, and they and so the back to the Marine Fisheries Council, they don't even make an attempt at factoring in the unobserved bycatch. Okay, so. There's two types of bycatch. There's a bycatch that makes it onto the deck, right? Mm-hmm. They're caught up in the same net. They get dragged up to the top. They're all tangled in it and whatnot. They and they die because they get shoveled over. Literally, shovelfuls of them get thrown over the side. Dead, dead fish, right? Mm-hmm. That's one thing. Disgusting enough to think about. Um, because and think about this for a second. A factory trawler can literally take shovelfuls of fish off of their deck and toss them over the side. Okay. If I don't take enough moose meat off the ribs of a moose I shoot, okay, enough, not just, if I don't take enough of the rib meat off the ribs and skeleton of a moose that I shoot up here, or even a fish, it's called wanton waste, and I can go to jail for that. Hmm. Not just a fine, I can go to jail for it, wow. okay? Um, so, you know, but back to unobserved bycatch. Um, so the unobserved bycatch is that is the actual stuff that's killed while still in the water and never makes it to the surface. So regulators aren't even trying to account for that in any of the numbers. They're they're assuming that that number is zero. They're assuming that something that like the size of a mini mall that's being dragged across the bottom isn't killing anything that doesn't make it onto the boat. Wow, um, which is absurd mm-hmm. when you think about it. Um, and some some people think. Um, I tend to kind of, I, it's hard to, it's hard to measure that number. So I don't want to make assumptions, but there've been a lot of people who think that un- unobserved bycatch could be as high or even higher than observed bycatch. But from a scientific perspective, the fishery regulators essentially pretend it doesn't exist. And that's wow. a problem. Yeah. Um, you couple, couple that with the fact that over the last 10 years, trawl in Alaska has reported wasting 141 million pounds of bycatch a year. That's 141 million pounds of fish. Um, An average of 1 million pounds of waste every three days, every two and a half to three days, they're wasting a million pounds of fish. And that is again, just the reported stuff, which we know to be lower than the reality. So it could be anywhere between, you know, three to 10 million pounds of fish that are getting killed and chucked over the side and wantonly wasted every day. Wow. Um, These big factory um, uh, trawlers, that's what you were calling them, right? Like factory? Yep. Um, how big are those boats? Um, so the your average factory trawler um, is... Um, you know, so the two, two vessels... Um, are um hang on i'm looking for uh, looking through my notes here for how big they are 60 to 70 meters in length okay 
Um, and they go to uh, and they go to sea for about six to eight weeks at a time. But there's about forty crew on each one of those boats. Okay. And then who, who are these American vessels or international vessels? What who who owns these? Yeah. Vessels? So there's a lot. There there's almost no Alaskan trawlers. Um, a lot of them are from Washington, but most of them are international um, organizations that come over here and through through Washington fish Alaska waters. Wow. Um, so is there is there a solution to to any of this? Um, if this is truly the problem, which it sounds like, obviously, if it's not the problem, it is a problem, uh, which seems seems. Uh, disturbing. Do you see any solution? Yeah, I think that, look, an ideal solution to this would be to outright ban factory trawling. I think there's huge problems with it. I think it's causing a lot of problems for the fisheries up here, which are obviously in need of some drastic action in order to save these fish, right? Because this is one of the last great runs of of king salmon, of chum salmon in the world. And this is, I think, the only state that is has representative wild populations of, of all five Pacific salmon species. And if we don't want these salmon species to go the way of the Atlantic salmon, where it's all just farmed crap, mm-hmm. um, I think we need to take real action, like, and I'm talking yesterday, if not yesterday, then today, like right now, to save these fish. Um from from going the way the Atlantic salmon, um, and you know, so banning factory trawling would be a start. Um, if we can't get there today, because you know, factory trawlers unfortunately have, um, you know, have very deep pockets and a lot of money um, for lobbying and things of that nature, and you know, they they throw expensive dinners for um, for Marine Fisheries Council members and th- and things like that. Um, then I think we need to institute real limits and real data from observers on the actual um, effects of, of bycatch and getting some real numbers, um, not just a 15% report rate, but um, real numbers on, on both observed bycatch and unobserved bycatch. Like there needs to be a study done on that at minimum um, because if, if, if the estimates are right that it kills just as many fish as observed bycatch, then that would then that would overnight double the amount of bycatch that should be reported, hmm. and that's not even factoring in the fact that um, that it's that it's um, the that the sorry <laughs> that that bycatch is underreported as a general rule. Mm-hmm. So here's a question for you: um, as soon as the the numbers of fish coming into the river decline. Um, and, and, and for anybody that doesn't know this, maybe you can explain it better than me, but when I was up there, I was asking our guides about it. Uh, there are certain mechanisms that count fish in the river. They count the fish that are going up the river and, uh, Mm -hmm. and they have, they can even tell, is that a King or is that a silver or is that a chum? Or they can even tell the species of the of the different fish. I'm not sure sure exactly how they do it, but apparently they have a lot of confidence in in this uh, this this mechanism that they have to count fish. As soon as that number drops, they are you're saying within within ten or twelve hours, even or a day, they can 
they can lower the regulate the regulation or change the regulation on how many people or can keep fish or how many fish you can keep or the limit is is yep. fluid right there depending on the number of fish coming in so first of all what i'm interested in what agency is um making that determination and then when the river when the numbers of fish going down coming into the river they can still trawl and and do the same thing that they were doing 20 years ago i guess i don't know uh but why why is it that i mean we have this data of fish going into the river why is it that one agency and i'm assuming that it's two agencies one will immediately decline that or, or or lower the number of recreational fish allowed or guided fish or anything but then yep. then the the trawling stays exactly the same what is there some some reason why um those are two different agencies or is i don't i don't i don't really understand why it wouldn't go down as you know as soon as 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 there was any sort of data saying there weren't as many fish that they would shut down the trawling too yeah so there's um that's a great question so there's uh the north pacific marine fisheries council um, which is at the federal level. That council um, has members um, that are uh, nominated by um, the governor of Alaska and some of the governors of the other North Pacific states. Um, and those members vote on um, on marine fisheries policy. So like all that policy with regard to the Gulf of Alaska, all those, all these protected marine fishing, fishing quote unquote protected um, marine fishing grounds. Um, and then you have who regulates the sport fishermen, mm -hmm. which is the Alaska Department of Fishing Game. Okay, that's a state level agency, um, wholly under the purview of the governor of Alaska. Um, so yes, as far as fish counting, I've seen a lot of it myself. So they have aerial surveys of kings. They also have, or not just kings, but all fish in the river. Um, they also use fish wheels. Uh, along certain choke points in the river or other pinch points. Um, they use weirs. Um, they use uh, a whole slew of different uh, underwater cameras mm -hmm. um, is a big one. Um, and they um, that's how they identify kind of how many fish, and they, they publish it. It's actually published on the Alaska Department of Fishing Game website for different river systems, um, how many fish are entering into the river system, and that's what dictates these emergency orders which um, which can very fluidly, I've seen it myself, change, you know, li catch limits from three to six, back to two, back to three. You know, it's it's kind of uh, it's <laughs> you almost need an attorney to go with you if you want to if you want to fish in Alaska anymore um, because of it. And those guys are doing their best. So I I spent uh, three days running up uh, the um, Yentna River about 150 miles of river we we did to do some bow fishing for an article I was writing about bow fishing for invasive pike which are which also affect salmon to a degree mm -hmm. um along the Deshka and um Yentna river systems out in the uh the Big Sioux drainage and so we um we actually passed by a few of those um fish wheels and the biologist I was hanging out with um you know kind of showed me how they work and stuff like that how the how the fish surveys happen and so the Department of, of Alaska Fish and Game, uh, they are very responsive to the number of fish and changing the, the laws and the rules. And, and I would be strongly in favor of that. I mean, if the data shows mm -hmm. that there aren't as many fish, then as a responsible angler, of course, you don't keep as many. So why exactly. is it that the same thing is not happening with the trawling? 
it's it's largely due to lobbying. They've got a lot of money. They've got a lot of power. They have they have strong, deep pocketed kind of coalition interests, and um, and the North Pacific Marine Fisheries Council is kind of you know very insulated from the opinions of your average um, you know fly fisherman, you know spin fisherman, whatever you are, like guide. Um, so they're unaccountable. Those guys are unaccountable, and and it doesn't affect them. Um, directly. So, you know, we're, we're left with, um, excuses after excuses, like, you know, saying that, well, we can't shut down the trawlers cause they're not actually fishing for, you know, for Kings or fishing for Pollock. Um, so, you know, they just, they don't take bycatch seriously, which is, is shocking to me because the numbers are what they are. And that's, this is, these all came from directly from their reports. And if you, just look at the king salmon numbers that they're reporting by catching. Um, it's, I mean, it's really concerning. That that alone would be concerning to me. You start putting in how much halibut, uh, and you know the fact that they're um, they're wasting, you know, I uh, reported 141 million pounds a year, um, and it's just unsustainable. Wow. I mean, so. Um- you know, in the in other fisheries, we've had situations where certain species were were bycatch turtles, for example, in in Florida. When when you're shrimping, um, the turtles were getting caught in the net, and so they made them create fishing uh, methods where they have these turtle free uh, nets where the turtles will the, the, there's a way they can get out, and and it's like a big hole in the net, and and they can get out, and so the the that became the law. And I guess, I mean, there are places where you could, you could look and say, okay, well, it worked, it worked here. Something worked here or the striped bass on the East coast, which I'm sure used to live in North, I mean, in uh, New Jersey, I'm sure you're very familiar with, with all of the different uh, regulations and all of the very extremely complex laws and regulations and different agencies and different States and different, countries even that are you know you got Canada and United States and you got a, a zillion different states up there on the eastern seaboard they oh, yeah, all the Delaware River compact all that stuff yeah they have all, they all have different laws they all have different um, uh, biologists that have different data and they they're all making different um, uh, laws and and regulations about what they need to do about the striped bass down to uh, at some point it becomes a complete moratorium. Nobody can fish for them at all for any reason. And, and the striped bass has come back. Um, if, if you were to, uh, wave a, a magic wand and say, you know, do you think that, um, you stop the trawling tomorrow and stop and, and even put a pause on, on, um, recreational fishing, do you think that, that the Kings could, um, could make a big comeback? Like, like that? Absolutely. You think so? Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, think about all the challenges that even even with all those complex laws and stuff that striped bass still have in the Northeast, mm-hmm. right? They're still, I mean, the Delaware River, I grew up a quarter mile from the Delaware River, so I'm really familiar with this fishery, right? You have the bass fin fish disease, which is actually um, rearing its head again down, mm. in, uh, down in the Maryland area. Well, I, don't, the I don't really know about that. What does that do? Uh, I'm, I'll have to send you some more information about it, but it, uh, it rots their fins basically okay. makes them, uh, makes them immobile. It's a big killer of bass though through, uh, and it jumps between bass species. So that's what actually, 
has really massacred a lot of the smallmouth and largemouth bass fisheries in the in the river, and it also greatly affects um, the uh, the stripers. Um, there's less shad than there were, you know, 50 years ago. There's less um, uh, just general forage of the smaller fish. The menhaden and stuff are all all struggling because of um, because of um, you know, just a number of reasons I won't go into on this podcast. Um, but that all affects striped bass, and they're still making a comeback, mm-hmm. right? And that's, I mean, the Delaware is not anywhere near as clean or as well-maintained as any river in Alaska. <laughs> so if you were to give the king some room, especially from these giant factory boats, um, and allow them to recover, I have, there's no doubt in my mind that they would make a, that they would make a startling recovery. Hmm. And how do you think, um, especially with your um, political background, that you understand how a lot of these things work? How how would that happen? Is there a way that that people can put pressure on that council or on the governor of Alaska? Or I don't know how 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 would that happen? How does a, a citizen, a concerned citizen, uh, make their voice known in this situation? Yep. Uh, so I will uh, send you uh, a link to a Facebook group that we've started um, in here in Alaska. That's a little over twenty thousand members strong. That um, gives a lot of information on how to um, fight back against these trawler bans. It's called Stop um, uh, Trawler Bycatch. Um, so that is one way. Just get involved in that group. That you know, you'll learn a lot about how to how to you know who to contact, how to contact them, etc. Um, otherwise contacting governor, uh, Dunleavy, he is, uh, so the North Pacific Marine Fisheries Council is, uh, again, it's that federal regulatory board, which regulates the trawl fleet. Um, there's 11 voting members of those and the governor of Alaska is allowed to choose six of them, which huh. is a majority. Okay. Mm-hmm. So contacting governor Levy, uh, Dunleavy, telling him to get anti-trawlers onto the board, stop giving those seats to, to pro commercial fishermen, you know, getting, getting more, um, more of the of the small kind of recreational fishing interests on the board. That's a good start. Contacting the board directly, the North Pacific Marine Fisheries Council. Um, that is a good good opportunity. And you can also, you know, exercise if you're in Washington State, if you're in Oregon, and, and first of all, your king runs are being affected too. <laughs> So you guys have have historic king runs, which are nowhere near where they were 50 years ago. I, I used to live in Oregon. I know that um, from talking to fishermen that live there. So talking to your uh, governors about getting pro fishing regulators onto these um, federal federal regulatory boards, talking to your congressman, talking to your senator. Um, and again, like you got to the time to act is very quickly closing. So if people don't start taking this stuff seriously, if they let these international factory trawlers continue raping these this Alaskan water, which, by the way, you're not allowed to factory trawl anywhere else in the United States. Hmm. Nowhere else. Wow. You're not allowed to you're not allowed to factory trawl off of California. You're not allowed to factory trawl off. That's why all the Washington boats come up here. They're not doing it out in their water. Um, you're definitely not not allowed to do it on the East Coast. So they're coming up here and using this outdated fishing method that's been banned in almost every country, um, uh, almost everywhere else in our country. And they're destroying not just one and not just king fishing. They're they're destroying kings. They're destroying chum salmon, 
there's huge limits that were instituted this year on halibut. Um, they're even allowed to fish the halibut nursery, which is exactly where halibut, like no one else is allowed to fish because that's where halibut are rearing their young. What? So, and they're, and they're dragging these giant, like giant factory trawling like vessels across the bottom there and just, just mowing these things down. Wow. So it's amazing. Yeah. There's anything left. I mean, it really is like, I mean, there's, I mean, there's certain fishing uh, methods that are just too, too uh, effective. I mean, the, and, and right. they, they are just non-sustainable because they're too effective. And that's what, that's what fishermen do. It's like, okay, well let's catch more. And then, you know, fishermen that they're, they're pretty smart. They figure it out. They're like, okay, well we just need a bigger net or we need a net that goes deeper or we need a net that does this, or we need a helicopter or an airplane to spot the fish. And then we'll surround them with this big purse seine and then we'll get them all. And over time, yep. The method becomes better and better and better and better and better until it will catch them all. And and eventually somebody has to step in and say, okay, well, you got to go back to hook and line fishing or you got to go back to um, some other method that is not as effective. And uh, in this situation, it seems pretty troubling that, uh, that, this, is, that this is still allowed. And it also seems... Um, like a fairly big challenge to to get the governor to to change a couple of seats on that on that council. Um, I, I mean, there's six people on that council for a reason, right? Because there's there's probably been some sort of influence or some sort of deal made or I don't know what it is, but otherwise you would have you would have a varied board that had a lot of different people being represented rather than the majority of the people being represented by, by commercial interests. So that seems, that seems like a challenge. Yeah, it is. And, you know, but we don't have another choice as sport anglers, right? If your dream is to come up to Alaska and you're saving up for five years out from now, you, you need to get involved no matter if you're living in Mississippi or Missouri or, you know, or, Florida or anywhere else. Like if, if Alaska is on your bucket list to catch a potential 400 pound halibut, if it's, if you want to catch the next world record, hundred pound King out of the Kenai, if you want to, you know, even if you want to catch um, like a chump salmon, just rip lips in like late August, early September. And you want to experience the legendary runs, which by the way, again, as an East coaster, I came out here and I, I can confirm <laughs> that these, that these fish are here and these fisheries are real. Um, then you need to get involved and like there, there just isn't another choice because if they're allowed to just continue to, to add infinitum, um, just continue to rape these waters, then it's that it's going to be game over for fishing up here. So you mentioned, uh, Washington, Oregon, Alaska, how do, um, other people get involved? Um, yeah, well, talking to your congressman, um, you know, so Ted Stevens, for instance, in 2012 introduced uh, a bill that that didn't actually end up um, passing to ban factory trawlers because um, that was the actually the very first year that the um, second fall run of Kings was closed to sport fishing in Alaska. Um, so you're talking about, again, that's that's an 11 year old bill. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um, you got to talk to your congressman. You got to get them to take it seriously because you got to understand if you're if you're a congressman from Oklahoma, 
you know, uh, and you're not like a big fisherman yourself, um, you're worried about your own constituents. I can't fault those people for that, right? But like, if you're if once they learn that their constituents also care about this issue, we're gonna get once we get a, a large national swell of interest in it, and it's not just the climate folks, because like, again, going back to what I said very early on. All the news organizations at the national level and the lower 48, et cetera, are trying to blame all of this collapsing salmon fishery on climate change. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't hold water. There was a record. Um, there was a record run of uh, of Kenai River Reds last year. Um, there was, you know, liberalizations and openings of sorry, my if my dog starts. <laughs> There's a um, bear in your backyard. Uh, there might be a moose actually, but, um, so, um, uh, so the, the, the reds are, are doing well. Even the silvers are, are, um, doing a little bit better. Pinks are, you know, running strong as they, they've ever done in a lot of fisheries. And those fish aren't in the same level of the water column that are affected like mm. chums and kings are. Um, so, um, there's a direct correlation between between all of these things if you link them together, and it's just not it's not just climate change. It can't be um, because if it was, then then the pinks would be struggling right. too, and so would the reds, and you know everything sure else that, like, that runs into this river system. It sure does seem like that's awfully convenient too to uh, to push the narrative of climate change for the people that are on that board or for the commercial fishermen that are that that are own these trawlers or that are the trawler fishermen because that takes the blame off of them oh well you know it's not us i mean the the climate's changing it's all the you know whatever whatever the reason the the climate's changing and that's you know that seems very convenient and it seems like that narrative would be fueled by the people that want to continue trawling i mean that does that seems like you know maybe a conspiracy theory a little bit but not really like that's where that's their that's their livelihood and so if they can shift the blame off of them to somebody else it's or, or to, to something that's not even someone, it's like something that is happening that seems like that's definitely probably happening. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, like you said, incredibly convenient of them to be able to say things like that. But also it, it just totally redirects or deflects, in my opinion, um, blame from, and, it, and this is a, this is a deeper problem than than just deflection, right? So I shouldn't blame it all on the trawlers um, and their PR groups and their public affairs firms and stuff because I've, I, I've spent my entire career working for these public affairs and public relations firms and stuff. I understand how all that stuff works. Um, but this is a – it's a it's also an issue because of the, the way that reporters report on these things, right? Like I, I – as somebody who communicates around hunting and fishing policy and has for, you know, five or 10 years now, um, I can tell you that there's a shocking amount of reporters who have no idea what the Pittman-Robertson Act is, for mm -hmm. instance, or know what any of this policy means or what any of these boards are made up of. And like during the fluke fight, the 17 to 18 inch push in New Jersey, you know, five years ago, um, trying to explain what the difference is there and the science and stuff behind it to, reporters who's like I'm, their title is environmental beat reporter mm -hmm. right um mm -hmm. trying to explain these these concepts to them which are fisheries policy is very complex i will give them that but i mean 
they take the easy way out and they're like, you know what? We're going to get more clicks if we write about climate change than anything else. Nobody wants to read a 10,000 word expose on, on factory trawling. So, so it doesn't get written. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, and, and, and it's no, uh, no surprise when you explain it that way that that you're saying that the you know most of the newspapers in the lower 48 are reporting it one way and then the Alaskan papers might be reporting in, a, in another way. There's just there's two stories and it's a more convenient story that is easier to digest and and um, and that's what that's what you get. Absolutely. Um, let me ask you this: you you uh, um, shifting to something else? You you said you're on the board. Uh, of, of something I missed it up there, but you're you're concerned about access, sportsmen's access in Alaska. Yeah, that's correct. It's the Alaska Outdoor Council. Um, so it's the it's the state affiliate of the NRA, but the, I've been on the board of similar organizations in other states. And when I was in New Jersey, I was a member of the New Jersey Outdoor Alliance. I was their vice president. So we took on the governor about you know fisheries and and hunting policy there um, in Alaska. Um, yeah, the Alaska Outdoor Council which fights for, you know, fishing access, um, outdoor access to, you know, trails and, you know, non-motorized and motorized access to get out there and, you know, and enjoy the great outdoors in Alaska. And what, uh, what do you think the status is of that, uh, in Alaska? Is it, is the access good? Are you having to, do you have big fights on your hands or, or like, where, where are you with that? Little of both. We do have big fights on our hands. Um, like any state, you know, I mean, you have the preservationists that are going to come in and try to try to restrict access whenever they can. And you get, you know, big development interests that want to that want to, um, you know, stop recreationalists from from enjoying the great outdoors, which belongs to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, Alaska really is the promised land. But that's just another reason to keep it that way. Right. So, like, if we start letting this state, which is huge, I mean, it's it's 33 percent of the size of the lower 48 to get combined. Right. Right. So. Um, if you start letting huge swaths of, of Alaska get shut down, um, then you're, then you're endangering kind of hunting and fishing at writ large. Okay. So, um, you know, a couple of our big fights right now, um, from, from, uh, I mean, trawling is a, is a big one at the moment. Um, in addition to that, from a hunting and access standpoint, we're seeing issues with the federal subsistence board. It's all it's almost always federal boards, by the way, um, that are that are pushing these just crap policy hmm. on Alaskans and and frankly, hunters and fishermen who come up to Alaska to enjoy the bounty that this state has to offer. Right. Um, so, um, you know, they're they're currently trying to shut down huge swaths of the state. I mean, as big as six or seven other states. Wow. Um, yeah. Entire units. They're trying to shut down to um, non-local uh, hunting and fishing. So they're trying to shut down like caribou and moose, for instance, to anybody who doesn't live in that specific area, which is wrong. Um, I mean, there's one thing to shut down out of state hunting. There's one, one thing to limit everyone to a draw or something of that nature and like give out a certain amount of tags. It's almost inexcusable in my opinion to just say, okay, only the people in this area can hunt this area. Like that's why, ridiculous. Why, why would they want to do that? Are they just trying to restrict access for some reason or, or, is yeah, it- there, so, uh, I mean, there's a lot of murky science around that. Um, and we go into a whole nother, we could go into a whole nother uh, podcast about that. 
um, which I don't think my dog will let me do. Sorry. Well, that's okay. We're we're closing in on time as the moose comes into your into your backyard, uh, which I'm sure that's probably what's going on. That's uh, that's that's actually exactly what it is. He's over in the trees there. I can see him. Wow, that's awesome. Bull or a cow or what? Nah, it's just a cow. Uh-huh. I think she hangs out around this area a lot though, because I've seen her a couple times. That's awesome. That's awesome. You got a moose in your backyard. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> I love moose. My uh, my kids were just in Yellowstone National Park the other day, and uh, they saw two. So they were. That's, oh my god, one they're of my favorite animals to see. I I used to think they were very very um, uh, just what do you call it graceful. Mm-hmm. And then one time I was walking my dog. Um, and one, a real young calf was kind of running alongside of us, just trying to keep pace with us. He was like in the trees and he went ass over tea kettle, just fell right <laughs> on his face and flipped over. And I was on my knees laughing about it. Um, and I was like, you know what? Maybe they're not as graceful as I thought they were, yeah. but um, they, they can be a little ornery. So uh, Stormy is an Alaskan Husky he was bred out in the bush in a, uh, and I rescued him from a native village, uh-huh. um, and he, um, I have had to teach him to uh, to um, respect wildlife a little better. So in, when he's inside, he barks at him. When he's outside, he tends to leave him alone because he's learned. But yeah. the first night I got, got him, they dropped him off at the end of my driveway, and a moose charged us. Um, and and that was his first first night in civilization. Wow. Um, so he'd never been inside a building before. He got he got dropped off outside of my house. Um, and as soon as he got out of a car, a big cow moose came from across the street in this big, you know, I mean, it's all woods and where I live. Um, so um, big cow moose came from across the street, uh, the woods across the street and just like charged us. And I had to shove him back into the car and hop over the hop over the car to the other side of it. <laughs> and wait for her to walk away. And then I opened that side of it and took him inside. Wow. Wow. So, Alaska's yep. a crazy place, man. It's a crazy place. <laughs> and, and I'm not really way out in the bush either. Yeah. I'm like, I'm, you know. No, I don't think you have to yeah, be, man. From what I from no, what I saw don't. up there, you could see it right in the middle of town. Um, but yeah. Alaska is a, is a really um, incredible, beautiful um, vast state. And, uh, you know, I really hope that, that we can get this salmon, you know, especially the king salmon, uh, back under control and, uh, and, and certainly have it for the, for our grandchildren and, and beyond. Um, so if, uh, if you could one more time, just tell people how they could maybe make the biggest impact, um, certainly talk to your congressman, but there were the Facebook, uh, assets and, and other things, uh, and if there's anything else that they can do, that would be uh, very, very helpful information. Uh, yeah. So let me pull that uh, um, that Facebook page for you. So talk to your governor um, or talk to the governor, Governor Dunleavy. Um, uh, talk to your congressman, your senator, and then you can join uh, our Facebook group at Stop Alaskan Trawler Bycatch. That again is stop Alaskan trawler bycatch. We're twenty five thousand members strong. Um, if you know, if you help us make it to fifty, that'll be one more drop in the bucket as we try to make a make an actual impact on on trawling's effect here in Alaska. Um, and then just you know, get the word out, your friends and family. Um, you know, try to be mindful about um, about you know buying food from Trident Seafoods, Pacific Seafoods, these big 
factory trawler organizations. Um, you know, if we if we stop making a market for this for this stuff, um, there there will be less of an incentive to do it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, man. Well, uh, um, I hope that uh, I hope that we make some real progress here, and I appreciate you coming on and and giving us all the the information. So. Uh, that's uh, that's the marching orders for for everybody is is pay attention to this this issue and do what you can. So um, absolutely, thanks, Tom. Up there, yeah, man. Thanks, Cody. I appreciate it, and uh, hope your dog uh, has a good time with that moose. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he will. <laughs> All right, man. All right, thanks so much, and we'll check in with you again and see how we're doing on this issue uh, in the future. Thank you. All right, see you.